the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost. I am Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com. Mo is one of the most respected macro analysts to come out of South Africa. He is now in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets expertise. Together, we will unpack the biggest trends and issues and scratch beneath the surface to bring you our insights and share our love and passion for markets and investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to Magic Markets. Welcome to episode 47 of Magic Markets. We are now in mid-October and it's starting to uh, you know, head towards the end of the year. There's quite a lot of energy here in South Africa, Mo. I think people are quite excited to maybe have a December that is a little bit more like the Decembers of uh, pre-2020, I suppose, where people could have a life and actually have a bit of fun. So there's some good energy down here. Uh, how is life on the ground in Canada? Ghost, thanks again. Uh, great to be back on the show. Uh, life in Canada, I mean, we're the, the inverse of you guys, right? So everything here is 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 culminating towards the colder season uh, we have fall the leaves are definitely falling and um, you know I think Halloween around the corner so that's some festivity but you know truth be told despite the fact that it gets really cold and really icy and I'm going to be moaning about shoveling my driveway again in another couple of months it's actually a very festive time of year so I think you know hopefully with a pandemic behind us, that is something to look forward to. Uh, I am a little grumpy, obviously, because I've been intending to travel back to South Africa for personal reasons, and logistics just haven't worked out. And I, I just don't think we're through that yet. So let's let's see let's see where that goes. I know South Africans are definitely getting their passports fired up and they're ready to travel. So uh, let's see what the festive season holds. But yeah, I think the energy levels are, are definitely there, and I think everyone can use a well-deserved break. But there's a couple of hard yards to put in before the year is actually one and done yep 100 percent. and this exuberance is coming through in some of the tourism shares locally and and perhaps that's something we'll talk on in future weeks but where that exuberance from consumers is definitely starting to come well not starting to come through has been coming through for months now is in global supply chains which are clogged to say the least so that is what we've decided to dedicate tonight's show to because the supply chain story is driving the narrative across multiple sectors many companies i mean you can barely uh, look through the headlines without seeing something about either shipping costs or a chip shortage or both and its impact on multiple listed companies and tonight's show will just give an overview of why this is happening and then i think we'll talk through some specific and very interesting examples Mo, because part of the intellectual joy of the markets is how connected everything is and how you know, sometimes it, it can be really tricky, but really rewarding to spot the impact of certain macro themes. And that's something you're certainly passionate on. And I love just seeing how they filter down into into companies. So perhaps let's start at the top, which is why is there a global shipping crisis as we speak? What is going on in supply chains? Ghost, I, I think it's so vitally important. In fact, I want to I rewind even a little bit further because I think we spoke on this show. I know certainly I, I'd put stuff on, on my blog, monos.com, around inflation, the whole inflation debate, inflation being transitory, transient. And my view early on uh, was that inflation as a concept is transitory, and, and that's because it's a rate of change. So that's a technical component. But what I did mention on the show as well is 
even if inflation is transitory, that it does not mean prices go back to where they were. So you get a step change higher in prices, and that then gets baked into the system. So I want to use that as almost the starting off point, simply because in some respects, I'm right, and in other respects, I'm wrong. I'm actually questioning my thesis, my own thesis, around how transient is this inflation story really. The reason I'm actually questioning that is because of what we've seen in global supply chains. Now, again, if we rewind a little bit, we can almost go back to a couple of months ago. We may have spoken about it on Magic Markets, but our listeners will remember a, a pesky ship that got stuck in the Swiss Canal. I want to say the Evergrande. It wasn't the Evergrande. It was the Evergreen or something like that, right? And this ship clogged global supply chains for a number of weeks whilst they tried to get it unstuck. And it led to lengthy lead times in terms of shipping globally, led to a push-up in terms of global shipping prices because capacity was constrained. And it's all part and parcel of a lot of the macro themes that we have spoken about on the show for quite some time. Is that, guys, we've gone through almost two years of a global pandemic. The policy response to that was, we're going to give you free money to stay at home in, in, in the developed world. Now, the problem with that as well is that there are unintended consequences. And I think we're dealing with some of those unintended consequences right now. So what happens is when you stay at home, global production shuts down. That's the first thing. Now, that's fine because you can run down inventories for a while. We'll get into that point shortly. But you run that down for a while. But eventually, people have to get back to work. And that's where we end up with the second dimension of the problem is now you've got to get production back on stream. And because of the massive stimulus programs, which only recently in September expired in the U.S., people have been slow to go back to work because they were collecting more money through the stimulus checks than they would get if they went back to work and sat on a production line. So there was literally zero economic and financial incentive for these guys to go back in. It's not just that. I've spoken to friends in the US right now that run and operate businesses. I'm going to give you some anecdotal stories because they're really fun. It's good to throw these real life experiences into the show and then we can look at it and translate that to market. So two stories. One, I have a friend. He's got a business. He is struggling to get his production workers back on the line and his drivers back in, in the trucks. And he either now has to pay up because the guys are saying, well, actually, we demand more money. We know there's a shortage. We demand more money to come and do the same work. So that's lower productivity that comes through. And that's assuming he can get anyone to come back on stream. He's facing supply chain shortages up and downstream. So, for example, he's in food manufacture. So the large U.S. food companies like a Cisco are saying, we just don't have stock of this staple or that staple. It's terrifying. It's real. It's coming, first of all, to a production facility near you and then potentially to a supermarket near you as well. Here's the other story. A friend of mine in New York recently moves into a new apartment. The appliances are delayed, which means that moving from her old apartment to the new apartment takes two months longer than, than scheduled. Anyways, she gets into her apartment, has now ordered furniture for the apartment. Delivery date was supposed to be August. Lo and behold, Global supply chain shortages means her new delivery date is pushed to February of next year. That's a problem. It's not even a story of, I will pay you more money. I need to get these goods. It's just that there are no goods available. And that's all of because of this confluence of events that have come through. And I would say very much or very or largely attributable to the global pandemic and the subsequent policy response. Yeah, it's incredibly interesting. And yet in South Africa, we have an unemployment rate that essentially, you know, whatever it is, an all-time high. And in America, you can't get people to go back to work. So the anecdotes on this side are, are, you know, there are no jobs. People want them. So that's a very different problem to the U.S. But here I've spoken to business owners as well who either cannot get ships, just can't get them in or out, 
or if they do get ships recently, the prices are, are bonkers, you know, and that's why something like Grindrod shipping has gone through to the moon because the Baltic dry index is sitting on, yeah, interestingly enough, still far below the sort of mid-2008 levels. I looked at a long-term chart, so that was uh, marginally frightening, but it's certainly the highest we've seen since the global financial crisis, and that's a really that's a really big story for you know the world at the end of the day. Products move around the world, especially because for years and years, companies did everything in their power to move their supply chains to countries with cheap labor as opposed to expensive labor. So Nike, for example, as we've looked at recently, they need people in Vietnam in factories making the shoes. And it has not been happening, which is causing major supply shortages and hurting their numbers. And that's just one example of the impact this has on companies ultimately. So maybe there's a conspiracy theory that the shipping companies got the ship stuck in the Suez Canal on purpose. Uh, you know, it, It's so funny because, you know, you're mentioning 2008 and you always abuse me about being this boomer relative to your millennial Gen X or whatever it may be, right? Is that the Baltic Dry Index was always used as this lead indicator in terms of global growth. Now, it decoupled, it broke down, financial crisis never really recovered. Pandemic has now pushed it all the way back up there. But I actually don't think it's a lead indicator in terms of global growth because right now it's indicating tightness in the system. Now, here's the worry is that it's not just supply chain constraints in the developed world. There are supply chain constraints in those outsourced markets. So if you're looking at China, for example, different dynamics, but there are energy constraints in China that mean that some factories are now being asked to move down to two days worth of production a week. Now, think about that. You're going to be running at a third of your capacity. You are the factory of the world. You are China. And if you're unable to export that cheap labor, yes, it's going to come with socio-political ramifications within China. But guess what? The rest of the world benefited off the globalized cheap labor globalization trend for so long. And you can't just flick a switch and onshore all of that capacity that you had offshore. So for example, you mentioned Nike bringing production back from Vietnam into the United States or into every localized region that a global company like Nike services is just not practical. And it's also not something that happens overnight. So this is the other mega trend we've been watching, which is I guess, a return to deglobalization, and it comes with risks and opportunities. I mean, South Africa has a unique opportunity in that it is the regional powerhouse. Pardon the pun. I know you guys are facing energy shortages down there. But it's a regional powerhouse and can actually play very productively into companies, global companies, that may want to use that as a localized manufacturing base. There are going to be some winners. There are going to be some losers. But maybe let's go into that. I mean, let's look at stocks. Let's look at companies specifically in your view and in that region, that market specifically. Who are the winners out of a supply chain constraint. It's a tight system right now. And the beneficiaries of the last trend, which was globalization, were guys that could offshore their production. You think it's as simple as saying that the beneficiaries are now the guys that onshore the production again? Or is it a lot more complex than that? Yeah. So from speaking to business owners, it does take a long time, obviously, to move your supply chain. So there's this kind of initial phase of, you know, we surely have to get through this because how could it possibly carry on? So at the end of the day, they take a 10-year view and they say, okay, well, I'm probably going to have a really tough six months and you know, maybe this Christmas is going to see some serious stock disruptions and some businesses will get through and some businesses won't because they just won't have the stock they expected. But if they move all their you know, supply chain stuff locally, then for the next 10 years, they're going to deal with the challenges of load shedding and higher prices and, and, and. So in reality... I guess where there's a relatively elastic supply chain or perhaps goods that can be manufactured locally as opposed to offshore. And I'm thinking stuff like textiles, for example. I mean, we can manufacture t-shirts in this country. It doesn't always have to come from Southeast Asia. As we head into you know, a new season, 
and potentially retailers can't get their hands on the stock they want. And we're just speculating here. You know, some of that may well find itself into local production houses, many of which would have capacity after we've seen some pretty high profile failures among some leading clothing groups. So that kind of stuff is difficult to participate in on the listed market because a lot of it would be sort of private companies. So that's the one challenge. I mean, the Grindrod shipping story, it's gone bananas and the easy money obviously has, well, not obviously, but has most likely been made. To run into that then now, you know, may end up feeling very silly in a month's time because those shipping businesses are completely cyclical. They make no money for years and then they make all their money and then they make no money again. looks a little bit like platinum. So, you know, stuff like that, if you didn't get in at the beginning, it's probably better to just watch from a distance and, and, and salute those who did because I think there's other stuff that's kind of waiting in the wind. So, for example, Barlow World uh, is sitting with a record order book in its South African business and in its Russian and Mongolian business uh, for heavy goods, essentially. And those heavy goods orders can't be fulfilled because they just can't get their hands on the stock. When the stock comes in, then they'll be able to fulfill those orders into their customer base of mining and resources companies that are doing very well at the moment. So there's going to be some there's pent up demand there. There's frustration among customers that can't get their hands on the stuff. Another example is Alviva which is a JSC-listed technology company and has a big focus on, on essentially IT distribution of hardware. So they only managed 1% top-line revenue growth in their latest financial year. And the reason for that is that they just couldn't get their hands on stock. So, you know, what's happened locally, and I think internationally as well, is a lot of companies have cleared out their inventory at really good prices. There's nothing better than when you bought stuff into stock six to nine months ago and suddenly you can sell it at 20 or 30% more than you thought you could. Then your gross profit margins look amazing. Chances are, or not chances are, but we've seen this, companies have cut operating costs heavily in the last 18 months. So you have this margin expansion where GP does well, operating costs have been cut to the bone, people were retrenched left and right, no one was investing for growth, and you suddenly have this bumper year of amazing profits. And now everyone goes and puts a multiple on those profits of 10 or whatever the case is, as though those profits can continue. And maybe they can. Some of these companies have definitely restructured to become more efficient, and that will be a sustainable benefit that will come through, certainly not in the unemployment rates, but in those specific companies. But in many cases, I think it's very flattering. And the problem is these companies need to replenish stock. And now it's difficult. They either can't do it, or they are going to have to pay top dollar for it. And now they're going to try and sell it into a consumer base that we know is under pressure, depending where you are in the world. I mean, that's maybe not the case in the US, for example, but certainly locally in South Africa. Consumer spending is kind of anyone's guess over the next six months. I mean, it always feels like it just carries on. I think we one of our early magic market shows called South Africa the fiscal cockroach because it just won't die. And I think consumer spending in this country is also the you know a bit of a cockroach that just won't die. But a lot of it is underpinned by government grants and all sorts of stuff. And eventually the music has to surely stop. It just has to. You know, we can see it in the unemployment rate. So that's tough for companies that have big inventory levels. It's going to be a risk over the next six to 12 months. I would be careful of that as an investor. Yeah, I think you raised some very critical points. And I mean, it's, it's almost like the market in this instance will lag some of the supply chain effects that we're seeing from a, from a macro perspective. I mean, like you say, you know, you're in a quarterly reporting structure, you're going to see this bump up and then you're going to see the potential constraint materialize. From a macro perspective, I mean, I would almost argue, let's, let's use an example of a global uh, value chain, right? You have the same supply chain constraints in the energy markets. I'm writing about that for, for something right now. And if you look at that, it's led to tight supply, 
which then filters through and impacts another example would be aluminium or aluminum as they call it up here where aluminium supply has now been curtailed because of the energy shortage right so that flows into the value chain now if aluminium prices have skyrocketed as they have that's going to flow through downstream into automotive manufacturers and or for example your your canning producers so it, it, it construction for example maybe not with aluminum but uh, for example other metals so that flow through is where we go back to the original point of does it get baked into the underlying price uh, level and it never comes back but over and above that for me it's highlighting a chronic lack of real investment that has taken place over the course of the last two decades. Uh, we've literally, whether you're a corporation or you're a sovereign or whoever you may be, you've been running off or running down your balance sheet over the course of the last two decades. All you've done is you've introduced financial leverage into the system and you don't have the operational leverage. We've spoken about concepts like that on the show before. And I think on a macro level, countries have utilized the financial leverage. They've also, I guess, not produced or invested in the underlying economy. And those are the fracture points that are starting to show now. Now, here's the problem is if we fast forward and we look at what is the strategy that the world economy needs for the next decade to generate the growth. It's all premised on a massive investment that has to go in, but it becomes a circular reference or a chicken and egg because you can't put in that investment unless your value chain is functional. So I guess that's the conundrum. They always say the cure for higher prices are higher prices, right? We spoke about this on the show where we mentioned lumber and it came off, but there's a stickiness factor to it and you don't turn on aluminium smelters overnight. You don't turn on global shipping overnight. And then what happens is a lot of that supply comes on stream with a bit of a lag and prices collapse. That's the cyclicality of the real economy and arguably filters through with a bit of a lag in this instance to cyclicality in the financial markets as well. Yeah, and something that I'm willing to go out on a bit of a limb for here, so we'll see how this pans out. It's always it's always dangerous making predictions. But you know, I'm no fan of buy-to-let property. I've called it buy-toilet famously, and including, including your property, Mo. I'm still not a fan of that, definitely not. But I will say this, in times of high inflation and big input costs and potentially supply issues for new housing and everything else, there are worse investments to have than the house you live in. So just to be clear, I still do not like renting out property, but the house I live in, I'm very happy that I own because I think that it could be it could be pretty good for house prices over the next few years. And the thing is, once you've bought a house, you've technically done the most leveraged trade of your life. Everyone forgets this. So if you buy a 2 million rand house and you only had a 100,000 rand deposit, you're getting leverage that you could never get on any other asset ever. Bank will never lend you 2 million rand against a 100,000 rand deposit to go buy shares. So that's why people do it. Yes, they would. Go buy a call option. You're getting massive leverage. I think I think you could get yeah, that kind of leverage. <laughs> oh, you live in a market where you can buy YOLO call options. In South Africa, here in the sticks, we don't get to do that kind of stuff. So, you know, we have to buy houses instead. But, you know, the point is that you've got exposure to big assets on a very leveraged basis, which in a time of inflation should do well. And you then have to look at can interest rates really get hiked massively from here because that's historically what happened in I mean in our parents generation I'm being kind to you here Mo I know that this was before your time you know house prices went nuts at one point but interest rates were running at whatever it was like 20% so I'm gonna give my age away I, I was financially active at the time I remember interest rates in South Africa in the in the in the teens and certainly low 20s at least so then they're about <laughs> you've given it away so the point is in a relatively low interest rate but high inflation environment which we seem to potentially be heading into she says worse things to own than your house so anyway, there's a random, random bit of thinking that has nothing to do with listed shares. 
I mean, to that point, I think it also highlights a fundamental point, which is it is so sensitive to where you sit. Uh, that's not just a comment in terms of geographically, I'm sitting in Canada, you're sitting in South Africa. It's also a question mark of where you sit on the global value chain and supply chain. You know, when I say they're going to be winners and losers, you talk about housing and, and buy toilet, for example, down in South Africa. It's the total opposite story up here in North America. We've spoken about it on the show. You, you literally, if you want to rent a property here, there are bidding wars to try and, you know, bid more than the next guy to pay rental for a property. So if you're the landlord, hey, you're doing well. You, they're bidding wars to buy properties. And these are all, I guess, symptomatic of that inflationary trade. But to your point, and this is a fundamental macro point, and also, I guess, leads back to the whole supply chain argument to try and tie this all together. The world system is incredibly leveraged right now. With interest rates as low as they are right now, I don't foresee policymakers. This is the, the problem with making predictions, I guess. But I don't foresee policymakers pushing the world economy into a massive crisis by hiking rates incredibly aggressively. I think that if they did that, economies would crumble. Household balance sheets would crumble. This all falls in a heap. That said, it does not mean that the market won't punish the participants. The market can push interest rates a lot higher, even if policy rates don't move. So keep that in mind in that it need not filter through through to your AAA rated credits, for example, your big multinationals. But companies that are lower down the value chain, where do you sit in that value chain? May struggle. You may see yield spreads between higher risk credits and lower risk credits start to open up. And so when I say there are many ways for this to actually devolve, Remember that what that means is that it's someone in that value chain that's going to feel the pressure. And that's where you really have to look at how resilient are you in terms of riding through the cycle. These are common themes. We spoke about it in the whole buy toilet argument as well is it might be terrible now, but it will. if you ride through the cycle, there's going to be a time when it is still the sweet trade to have. And that's the, I guess, my parting point right now is global supply chains are constrained companies are constrained. Some of them are going to make bucket loads of money now and maybe not make bucket loads later. Some are going to make money now and later. But it's important in that when it all comes through in the wash, those that generally are healthier, that have healthier balance sheets, will either not just be able to survive this, but will also be able to take the opportunities when they present themselves and take out the weaker players. And that is the beauty of markets. So, that's my parting comment on this just from a magic markets perspective is we have to always apply these lenses. We have to apply some consistency and our longtime listeners, I hope you guys are picking up on some of these themes and trends that we spoke about months ago that are still relevant to a discussion on markets today. Yeah, it's like a top gear, top tip. In times of supply chain problems, don't chase the companies that already went crazy like Grindrod Shipping. Look at what's coming next. Be careful if things are cleared out their inventory and own your own toilet. This is what we've concluded on this very important episode of Magic Markets. And Mo, we should probably just leave it there. So thank you to our listeners. Uh, we always have a lot of fun with this and it's always great to have you along with us. Please do give the show a rating. It all helps and it helps other people find it because then they see that people are enjoying it and they too will then hopefully come and enjoy it. Yeah, Ghost, before we leave, I want to just highlight something for our listeners. Keep your eyes peeled, something really exciting. We've spoken about it in our social media handles, but Magic Markets Premium is coming, and it's something different, it's something fresh, and if you're a long-time listener or if you're just discovering us, keep your eyes peeled for developments in that space. It's coming soon, within the next couple of weeks. Ghost, I'm putting us out there. We've committed to this. We're excited to have you guys along for the ride, and we hope you will be as excited as us when you see what we've got to put on the table there. So thanks again, and we'll chat to you again next week. Same time, same place. Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. 
This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.